Chapter 22 Fourth Estate Nothing is harder than living with a secret that can't be spoken. Lying to strangers about a cover identity or concealing the fact that your office is under the world's most top-secret pineapple field might sound like it qualifies, but at least you're part of a team. Though your work may be secret, it's a shared secret, and therefore a shared burden. There is misery, but also laughter. When you have a real secret, though, that you can't share with anyone, even the laughter is a lie. I could talk about my concerns, but never about where they were leading me. To the day I die, I'll remember explaining to my colleagues how our work was being applied to violate the oaths we had sworn to uphold, and their verbal shrug in response. What can you do about it? I hated that question, its sense of resignation, its sense of defeat. But it still felt valid enough that I had to ask myself, well, what? When the answer presented itself, I decided to become a whistleblower. Yet to breathe to Lindsay the love of my life, even a word about that decision, would have put our relationship to an even crueler test than saying nothing. Not wishing to cause her any more harm than I was already resigned to causing, I kept silent. And in my silence, I was alone. I thought that solitude and isolation would be easy for me, or at least easier than it had been for my predecessors in the whistleblowing world. Hadn't each step of my life served as a kind of preparation? Hadn't I gotten used to being alone after all those years spent hushed and spellbound in front of a screen? I'd been the solo hacker, the night shift harbor master, the keeper of the keys in an empty office. But I was human, too. And the lack of companionship was hard. Each day was haunted by struggle as I tried and failed to reconcile the moral and the legal, my duties and my desires. I had everything I'd ever wanted. Love, family, and success far beyond what I ever deserved. And I lived in Eden, amid plentiful trees, only one of which was forbidden to me. The easiest thing should have been to follow the rules. And even if I was already reconciled to the dangers of my decision, I wasn't yet adjusted to the role. After all, who was I to put this information in front of the American public? Who'd elected me the president of secrets? The information I intended to disclose about my country's secret regime of mass surveillance was so explosive, yet so technical, that I was as scared of being doubted as I was of being misunderstood. That was why my first decision, after resolving to go public, was to go public with documentation. The way to reveal a secret program might have been merely to describe its existence, but the way to reveal programmatic secrecy was to describe its workings. This required documents, the agency's actual files, as many as necessary to expose the scope of the abuse, though I knew that disclosing even one PDF would be enough to earn me prison. The threat of government retribution against any entity or platform to which I made the disclosure led me to briefly consider self-publishing. That would have been the most convenient and safest method, just collecting the documents that best communicated my concerns and posting them online, as they were, then circulating a link. 
Ultimately, one of my reasons for not pursuing this course had to do with authentication. Scores of people post classified secrets to the internet every day, many of them about time travel technologies and aliens. I didn't want my own revelations, which were fairly incredible already, to get lumped in with the outlandish and lost among the crazy. It was clear to me then, from the earliest stages of the process, that I required, and that the public deserved, some person or institution to vouch for the veracity of the documents. I also wanted a partner to vet the potential hazards posed by the revelation of classified information, and to help explain that information by putting it in technological and legal context. I trusted myself to present the problems with surveillance, and even to analyze them, but I'd have to trust others to solve them. Regardless of how wary of institutions I might have been by this point, I was far warier of trying to act like one myself. Cooperating with some type of media organization would defend me against the worst accusations of rogue activity and correct for whatever biases I had, whether they were conscious or unconscious, personal or professional. I didn't want any political opinion of mine to prejudice anything with regard to the presentation or reception of the disclosures. After all, in a country in which everyone was being surveilled, no issue was less partisan than surveillance. In retrospect, I have to credit at least some of my desire to find ideological filters to Lindsay's improving influence. Lindsay had spent years patiently instilling in me the lesson that my interests and concerns weren't always hers, and certainly weren't always the world's, and that just because I shared my knowledge didn't mean that anyone had to share my opinion. Not everybody who was opposed to invasions of privacy might be ready to adopt 256-bit encryption standards or drop off the Internet entirely. An illegal act that disturbed one person as a violation of the Constitution might upset another person as a violation of their privacy or of that of their spouse or children. Lindsay was my key to unlocking this truth, that diverse motives and approaches can only improve the chances of achieving common goals. She, without even knowing it, gave me the confidence to conquer my qualms and reach out to other people. But which people? Who? It might be hard to remember or even to imagine, but at the time when I first considered coming forward, the Whistleblowers Forum of Choice was WikiLeaks. Back then, it operated in many respects like a traditional publisher, albeit one that was radically skeptical of state power. WikiLeaks regularly joined up with leading international publications like The Guardian, The New York Times, Der Spiegel, Le Monde, and El País to publish the documents provided by its sources. The work that these partner news organizations accomplished over the course of 2010 and 2011 suggested to me that WikiLeaks was most valuable as a go-between that connected sources with journalists and as a firewall that preserved sources' anonymity. WikiLeaks practices changed following its publication of disclosures by U.S. Army Private Chelsea Manning. Huge caches of U.S. military field logs pertaining to the Iraq and Afghan wars, information about detainees in Guantanamo Bay, along with U.S. diplomatic cables. Due to the governmental backlash and media controversies surrounding the site's redaction of the Manning materials, WikiLeaks decided to change course 
and publish future leaks as they received them, pristine and unredacted. This switch to a policy of total transparency meant that publishing with WikiLeaks would not meet my needs. Effectively, it would have been the same for me as self-publishing, a route I'd already rejected as insufficient. I knew that the story the NSA documents told about a global system of mass surveillance deployed in the deepest secrecy was a difficult one to understand, a story so tangled and technical that I was increasingly convinced that it could not be presented all at once in a document dump, but only by the patient and careful work of journalists, undertaken in the best scenario I could conceive of with the support of multiple independent press institutions. Though I felt some relief once I'd resolved to disclose directly to journalists, I still had some lingering reservations. Most of them involved my country's most prestigious publications, particularly America's newspaper of record, the New York Times. Whenever I thought about contacting the Times, I found myself hesitating. While the paper had shown some willingness to displease the U.S. government with its WikiLeaks reporting, I couldn't stop reminding myself of its earlier conduct involving an important article on the government's warrantless wiretapping program by Eric Lichbrow and James Risen. Those two journalists, by combining information from Justice Department whistleblowers with their own reporting, had managed to uncover one aspect of Stellar Wind, the NSA's original recipe post-9-11 surveillance initiative and had produced a fully written, edited, and fact-checked article about it, ready to go to press by mid-2004. It was at this point that the paper's editor-in-chief, Bill Keller, ran the article past the government as part of a courtesy process whose typical purpose is for a publication's editorial staff to have a chance to assess the government's arguments as to why the publication of certain information might endanger national security. In this case, as in most cases, the government refused to provide a specific reason, but implied that one existed and that it was classified too. The Bush administration told Keller and the paper's publisher, Arthur Sulzberger, without providing any evidence, that the Times would be emboldening America's enemies and enabling terror if it went public with the information that the government was wiretapping American citizens without a warrant. Unfortunately, the paper allowed itself to be convinced and spiked the article. Lichblau and Risen's reporting finally ran, but over a year later, in December 2005, and only after Risen pressured the paper by announcing that the material was included in a book of his that was about to be released. Had that article run when it was originally written, it might well have changed the course of the 2004 election. If the Times, or any paper, did something similar to me, if it took my revelations, reported on them, submitted the reporting for review, and then suppressed its publication, I'd be sunk. Given the likelihood of my identification as the source, it would be tantamount to turning me in before any revelations were brought to the public. If I couldn't trust a legacy newspaper, could I trust any institution? Why even bother? I hadn't signed up for any of this. I had just wanted to screw around with computers and maybe do some good for my country along the way. I had a lease and a lover, and my health was improved. Every stop sign on my commute I took as advice to stop this voluntary madness. My head and heart were in conflict. With 
the only constant being the desperate hope that somebody else, somewhere else, would figure it out on their own. After all, wasn't journalism about following the breadcrumbs and connecting the dots? What else did reporters do all day besides tweet? I knew at least two things about the denizens of the Fourth Estate. They competed for scoops, and they knew very little about technology. It was this lack of expertise or even interest in tech that largely caused journalists to miss two events that stunned me during the course of my fact-gathering about mass surveillance. The first was the NSA's announcement of the construction of a vast new data facility in Bluffdale, Utah. The agency called it the Massive Data Repository, until somebody with a knack for PR realized the name might be tough to explain if it ever got out. So it was renamed the Mission Data Repository, because as long as you don't change the acronym, you don't have to change all the briefing slides. The MDR was projected to contain a total of four 25,000-square-foot halls filled with servers. It could hold an immense amount of data, basically a rolling history of the entire planet's pattern of life, insofar as life can be understood through the connection of payments to people, people to phones, phones to calls, calls to networks, and the synoptic array of Internet activity moving along those networks' lines. The only prominent journalist who seemed to notice the announcement was James Bamford, who wrote about it for Wired in March 2012. There were a few follow-ups in the non-tech press, but none of them furthered the reporting. No one asked what, to me at least, were the most basic questions. Why does any government agency, let alone an intelligence agency, need that much space? What data and how much of it do they really intend to store there and for how long? Because there was simply no reason to build something to those specs unless you were planning on storing absolutely everything forever. Here was, to my mind, the corpus delicti, the plain-as-day corroboration of a crime in a gigantic concrete bunker surrounded by barbed wire and guard towers sucking up a city's worth of electricity from its own power grid in the middle of the Utah desert. And no one was paying attention. The second event happened one year later, in March 2013, one week after Clapper lied to Congress and Congress gave him a pass. A few periodicals had covered that testimony, though they merely regurgitated Clapper's denial that the NSA collected bulk data on Americans. But no so-called mainstream publication at all covered a rare public appearance by Ira Gus Hunt, the chief technology officer of the CIA. I'd known Gus slightly from my Dell stint with the CIA. He was one of our top customers, and every vendor loved his apparent inability to be discreet. He'd always tell you more than he was supposed to. For sales guys, he was like a bag of money with a mouth. Now he was appearing as a special guest speaker at a civilian tech event in New York called the GigaOM Structure Data Conference. Anyone with $40 could go to it. The major talks, such as Gus's, were streamed for free live online. The reason I'd made sure to catch his talk was that I'd just read through internal NSA channels that the CIA had finally decided on the disposition of its cloud contract. It had refused my old team at Dell and turned down HP, too, instead signing a 10-year, $600 million cloud development and management deal with Amazon. 
I had no negative feelings about this. Actually, at this juncture, I was pleased that my work wasn't going to be used by the agency. I was just curious, from a professional standpoint, whether Gus might obliquely address this announcement and offer any insight into why Amazon had been chosen, since rumors were going around that the proposal process had been rigged in Amazon's favor. I got insight, certainly, but of an unexpected kind. I had the opportunity of witnessing the highest-ranking technical officer at the CIA stand on stage in a rumpled suit and brief a crowd of uncleared normies and, via the Internet, the uncleared world, about the agency's ambitions and capacities. As his presentation unfolded and he alternated bad jokes with an even worse command of PowerPoint, I grew more and more incredulous. At the CIA, he said, we fundamentally try to collect everything and hang on to it forever. As if that wasn't clear enough, he went on. It is nearly within our grasp to compute on all human-generated information. He was reading from his slide deck, ugly words in an ugly font illustrated with the government's signature four-color clip art. There were a few journalists in the crowd, apparently, though it seemed as if almost all of them were from specialty tech government publications like Federal Computer Week. It was telling that Gus stuck around for a Q&A toward the conclusion of his presentation. Rather, it wasn't quite a Q&A, but more like an auxiliary presentation offered directly to the journalists. He must have been trying to get something off his chest, and it wasn't just his clown tie. Gus told the journalists that the agency could track their smartphones, even when they were turned off, that the agency could surveil every single one of their communications. Remember, this was a crowd of domestic journalists, American journalists, and the way that Gus said could came off as has, does, and will. He perorated in a distinctly disturbed and disturbing manner, at least for a CIA high priest. Technology is moving faster than government or law can keep up. It's moving faster than you can keep up. You should be asking the question of what are your rights and who owns your data. I was floored. Anyone more junior than Gus who had given a presentation like this would have been wearing orange by the end of the day. Coverage of Gus's confession ran only in the Huffington Post. But the performance itself lived on at YouTube, where it still remains, at least at the time of this writing, six years later. The last time I checked, it had 313 views, a dozen of them mine. The lesson I took from this was that for my disclosures to be effective, I had to do more than just hand some journalists some documents, more even than help them interpret the documents. I had to become their partner to provide the technological training and tools to help them do their reporting accurately and safely. Taking this course of action would mean giving myself over totally to one of the capital crimes of intelligence work. Whereas other spies have committed espionage, sedition, and treason, I would be aiding and abetting an act of journalism. The perverse fact is that legally, those crimes are virtually synonymous. American law makes no distinction between providing classified information to the press in the public interest and providing it, even selling it, to the enemy. The only opinion I've ever found to contradict this came from my first indoctrination into the IC. There, 
I was told that it was in fact slightly better to offer secrets for sale to the enemy than to offer them for free to a domestic reporter. A reporter will tell the public, whereas an enemy is unlikely to share its prize, even with its allies. Given the risks I was taking, I needed to identify people I could trust who were also trusted by the public. I needed reporters who were diligent yet discreet, independent yet reliable. They would need to be strong enough to challenge me on the distinctions between what I suspected and what the evidence proved, and to challenge the government when it falsely accused their work of endangering lives. Above all, I had to be sure that whoever I picked wouldn't ultimately cave to power when put under pressure that was certain to be like nothing they or I had ever experienced before. I cast my net so widely as to imperil the mission, but widely enough to avoid a single point of failure, the New York Times problem. One journalist, one publication, even one country of publication wouldn't be enough because the U.S. government had already demonstrated its willingness to stifle such reporting. Ideally, I'd give each journalist their own set of documents simultaneously, leaving me with none. This would shift the focus of scrutiny to them and ensure that even if I were arrested, the truth would still get out. As I narrowed down my list of potential partners, I realized I'd been going about this all wrong, or just wastefully. Instead of trying to select the journalists on my own, I should have been letting the system that I was trying to expose select them for me. My best partners, I decided, would be journalists whom the national security state had already targeted. Laura Poitras I knew as a documentarian, primarily concerned with America's post-9-11 foreign policy. Her film, My Country, My Country, depicted the 2005 Iraqi national elections that were conducted under and frustrated by the U.S. occupation. She had also made The Program about the NSA cryptanalyst William Binney, who had raised objections through proper channels about Trailblazer, the predecessor of Stellar Wind, only to be accused of leaking classified information, subjected to repeated harassment, and arrested at gunpoint in his home, though never charged. Laura herself had been frequently harassed by the government because of her work, repeatedly detained and interrogated by border agents whenever she traveled in or out of the country. Glenn Greenwald I knew as a civil liberties lawyer turned columnist, initially for Salon, where he was one of the few who wrote about the unclassified version of the NSAIG's report back in 2009 and later for the U.S. edition of The Guardian. I liked him because he was skeptical and argumentative, the kind of man who'd fight with the devil, and when the devil wasn't around, fight with himself. Though Ewan McCaskill of the British edition of The Guardian and Bart Gelman of The Washington Post would later prove stalwart partners and patient guides to the journalistic wilderness, I found my earliest affinity with Laura and Glenn, perhaps because they weren't merely interested in reporting on the IC, but had personal stakes in understanding the institution. The only hitch was getting in touch. Unable to reveal my true name, I contacted the journalists under a variety of identities, disposable masks worn for a time and then discarded. The first of these was Cincinnatus, after the legendary farmer who became a Roman consul and then voluntarily relinquished his power. That was followed by Citizen Four, 
a handle that some journalists took to mean that I considered myself the fourth dissident employee in the NSA's recent history, after Binney and his fellow trailblazer whistleblowers J. Kirk Weeb and Ed Loomis. Though the triumvirate I actually had in mind consisted of Thomas Drake, who disclosed the existence of Trailblazer to journalists, and Daniel Ellsberg and Anthony Russo, whose disclosure of the Pentagon Papers helped expose the deceptions of the Vietnam War and bring it to an end. The final name I chose for my correspondence was Verax, Latin for Speaker of Truth, in the hopes of proposing an alternative to the model of a hacker called Mendax, Speaker of Lies, the pseudonym of the young man who'd grow up to become WikiLeaks' Julian Assange. You can't really appreciate how hard it is to stay anonymous online until you've tried to operate as if your life depended on it. Most of the communication systems set up by the IC have a single basic aim. The observer of a communication must not be able to discern the identities of those involved or in any way attribute them to an agency. This is why the IC calls these exchanges non-attributable. The pre-internet spycraft of anonymity is famous mostly from TV and the movies. A safe house address coded in bathroom stall graffiti, for instance, or scrambled into the abbreviations of a classified ad. Or think of the Cold War's dead drops, the chalk marks on mailboxes signaling that a secret package was waiting inside a particular hollowed-out tree in a public park. The modern version might be fake profiles trading fake chats on a dating site, or, more commonly, just a superficially innocuous app that leaves superficially innocuous messages on a superficially innocuous Amazon server secretly controlled by the CIA. What I wanted, however, was something even better than that, something that required none of that exposure and none of that budget. I decided to use somebody else's internet connection. I wish that were simply a matter of going to a McDonald's or Starbucks and signing on to their Wi-Fi. But those places have CCTV and receipts and other people, memories with legs. Moreover, every wireless device from a phone to a laptop has a globally unique identifier called an MAC, Machine Address Code, which it leaves on record with every access point it connects to a forensic marker of its users' movements. So I didn't go to McDonald's or Starbucks. I went driving. Specifically, I went war driving, which is when you convert your car into a roving Wi-Fi sensor. For this, you need a laptop, a high-powered antenna, and a magnetic GPS sensor, which can be slapped atop the roof. Power is provided by the car or by a portable battery, or else by the laptop itself. Everything you need can fit into a backpack. I took along a cheap laptop running Tails, which is a Linux-based amnesiac operating system, meaning it forgets everything when you turn it off and starts fresh when you boot it up again, with no logs or memory traces of anything ever done on it. Tails allowed me to easily spoof or disguise the laptop's MAC. Whenever it connected to a network, it left behind the record of some other machine in no way associable with mine. Usefully enough, Tails also had built-in support for connecting to the anonymizing Tor network. At nights and on weekends, I drove around what seemed like the entire island of Oahu, letting my antenna pick up the pulses of each Wi-Fi network, 
My GPS sensor tagged each access point with the location at which it was noticed, thanks to a mapping program I used called Kismet. What resulted was a map of the invisible networks we pass by every day without even noticing, a scandalously high percentage of which had either no security at all or security I could trivially bypass. Some of the networks required more sophisticated hacking. I'd briefly jam a network, causing its legitimate users to be booted offline— In their attempt to reconnect, they'd automatically rebroadcast their authentication packets, which I could intercept and effectively decipher into passwords that would let me log on just like any other authorized user. With this network map in hand, I'd drive around Oahu like a madman, trying to check my email to see which of the journalists had replied to me. Having made contact with Laura Poitras, I'd spend much of the evening writing to her, sitting behind the wheel of my car at the beach, filching the Wi-Fi from a nearby resort. Some of the journalists I'd chosen needed convincing to use encrypted email, which back in 2012 was a pain. In some cases, I had to show them how, so I'd upload tutorials, sitting in my idling car in a parking lot, availing myself of the network of a library, or of a school, or of a gas station, or of a bank, which had horrifyingly poor protections. The point was not to create any patterns. Atop the parking garage of a mall, secure in the knowledge that the moment I closed the lid of my laptop, my secret was safe, I'd draft manifestos explaining why I'd gone public, but then delete them. And then I'd try writing emails to Lindsay, only to delete them too. I just couldn't find the words. Chapter 23. Read, Write, Execute. Read, Write, Execute. In computing, these are called permissions. Functionally speaking, they determine the extent of your authority within a computer or computer network, defining what exactly you can and cannot do. The right to read a file allows you to access its contents, while the right to write a file allows you to modify it. Execution, meanwhile, means that you have the ability to run a file or program to carry out the actions it was designed to do. Read, write, execute. This was my simple three-step plan. I wanted to burrow into the heart of the world's most secure network to find the truth, make a copy of it, and get it out into the world. And I had to do all this without getting caught, without being read, written, and executed myself. Almost everything you do on a computer, on any device, leaves a record. Nowhere is this more true than at the NSA. Each login and logout creates a log entry. Each permission I used left its own forensic trace. Every time I opened a file, every time I copied a file, that action was recorded. Every time I downloaded, moved, or deleted a file, that was recorded too. And security logs were updated to reflect the event. There were network flow records, public key infrastructure records. People even joked about cameras hidden in the bathrooms, in the bathroom stalls. The agency had a not inconsiderable number of counterintelligence programs spying on the people who were spying on people. And if even one caught me doing something I wasn't supposed to be doing, it wouldn't be a file that was getting deleted. Luckily, the strength of these systems was also their weakness. Their complexity meant that not even the people running them necessarily knew how they worked. Nobody actually understood where they overlapped and where their gaps were. 
Nobody, that is, except the system's administrators. After all, those sophisticated monitoring systems you're imagining, the ones with scary names like Midnight Rider, somebody's got to install them in the first place. The NSA may have paid for the network, but sysadmins like myself were the ones who really owned it. The read phase would involve dancing through the digital grid of tripwires laid across the routes connecting the NSA to every other intelligence agency, domestic and foreign. Among these was the NSA's UK partner, the Government Communications Headquarters, or GCHQ, which was setting up dragnets like Optic Nerve, a program that saved a snapshot every five minutes from the cameras of people video chatting on platforms like Yahoo Messenger, and Photon Torpedo, which grabbed the IP addresses of MSN Messenger users. By using Heartbeat to bring in the documents I wanted, I could turn bulk collection against those who'd turned it against the public, effectively Frankensteining the IC. The agency's security tools kept track of who read what, but it didn't matter. Anyone who bothered to check their logs was used to seeing Heartbeat by now. It would sound no alarms. It was the perfect cover. But while Heartbeat would work as a way of collecting the files, far too many files, it only brought them in to the server in Hawaii, a server that kept logs even I couldn't get around. I needed a way to work with the files, search them, and discard the irrelevant and uninteresting, along with those containing legitimate secrets that I wouldn't be giving to journalists. At this point, still in my read phase, the hazards were manifold, due mainly to the fact that the protocols I was up against were no longer geared to monitoring, but to prevention. If I ran my searches on the Heartbeat server, it would light a massive electronic sign blinking, Arrest me. I thought about this for a while. I couldn't just copy the files directly from the Heartbeat server onto a personal storage device and waltz out of the tunnel without being caught. What I could do, though, was bring the files closer, directing them to an intermediate way station. I couldn't send them to one of our regular computers because by 2012, all of the tunnel had been upgraded to new thin client machines, small, helpless computers with crippled drives and CPUs that couldn't store or process data on their own, but did all of their storage and processing on the cloud. In a forgotten corner of the office, however, there was a pyramid of disused desktop computers, old, moldering legacy machines the agency had wiped clean and discarded. When I say old here, I mean young by the standards of anyone who doesn't live on a budget the size of the NSAs. They were Dell PCs from as recently as 2009 or 2010. Large, gray rectangles of comforting weight, which could store and process data on their own without being connected to the cloud. What I liked about them was that though they were still in the NSA system, they couldn't really be closely tracked as long as I kept them off the central networks. I could easily justify needing to use these stolid, reliable boxes by claiming that I was trying to make sure Heartbeat worked with older operating systems. After all, not everybody at every NSA site had one of the new thin clients just yet. And what if Dell wanted to implement a civilian version of Heartbeat? Or what if the CIA or FBI or some similarly backward organization wanted to use it? Under the guise of compatibility testing, 
I could transfer the files to these old computers where I could search, filter, and organize them as much as I wanted, as long as I was careful. I was carrying one of the big old hulks back to my desk when I passed one of the IT directors who stopped me and asked me what I needed it for. He'd been a major proponent of getting rid of them. Stealing secrets, I answered, and we laughed. The read phase ended with the files I wanted, all neatly organized into folders, but they were still on a computer that wasn't mine, which was still in the tunnel underground. Enter, then, the write phase, which, for my purposes, meant the agonizingly slow, boring, but also cripplingly scary process of copying the files from the legacy Dells to something that I could spirit out of the building. The easiest and safest way to copy a file off any IC workstation is also the oldest, a camera. Smartphones, of course, are banned in NSA buildings, but workers accidentally bring them in all the time without anyone noticing. They leave them in their gym bags or in the pockets of their windbreakers. If they're caught with one in a random search and they act goofily abashed instead of screaming panicked Mandarin into their wristwatch, they're often merely warned especially if it's their first offense. But getting a smartphone loaded with NSA secrets out of the tunnel is a riskier gambit. Odds are that nobody would have noticed or cared if I walked out with a smartphone, and it might have been an adequate tool for a staffer trying to copy a single torture report. But I wasn't wild about the idea of taking thousands of pictures of my computer screen in the middle of a top-secret facility. Also, The phone would have had to be configured in such a way that even the world's foremost forensic experts could seize and search it without finding anything on it that they shouldn't. I'm going to refrain from publishing how exactly I went about my own writing, my own copying and encryption, so that the NSA will still be standing tomorrow. I will mention, however, what storage technology I used for the copied files. Forget thumb drives, They're too bulky for the relatively small amount they store. I went instead for SD cards. The acronym stands for Secure Digital. Actually, I went for the mini and micro SD cards. You'll recognize SD cards if you've ever used a digital camera or video camera or needed more storage on a tablet. They're tiny little buggers, miracles of non-volatile flash storage, and at 20 by 21.5 millimeters for the mini, 15 by 11 millimeters for the micro, basically the size of your pinky fingernail, eminently concealable. You can fit one inside the pried-off square of a Rubik's Cube, then stick the square back on, and nobody will notice. In other attempts, I carried a card in my sock, or at my most paranoid, in my cheek, so I could swallow it if I had to. Eventually, as I gained confidence and certainty in my methods of encryption, I'd just keep a card at the bottom of my pocket. They hardly ever triggered metal detectors, and who wouldn't believe I'd simply forgotten something so small? The size of SD cards, however, has one downside. They're extremely slow to write. Copying times for massive volumes of data are always long, at least always longer than you want. But the duration tends to stretch even more when you're copying not to a speedy hard drive, but to a minuscule silicon wafer embedded in plastic. Also, I wasn't just copying. I was deduplicating, compressing, encrypting, none of which processes could be accomplished simultaneously with any other. 
I was using all the skills I'd ever acquired in my storage work because that's what I was doing, essentially. I was storing the NSA's storage, making an off-site backup of the evidence of the IC's abuses. It could take eight hours or more, entire shifts, to fill a card. And though I switched to working nights again, those hours were terrifying. There was the old computer chugging, monitor off, with all but one fluorescent ceiling panel dimmed to save energy in the after hours. And there I was, turning the monitor back on every once in a while to check the rate of progress and cringing. You know the feeling, the sheer hell of following the completion bar, as it indicates 84% completed, 85% completed, 1 hour 58 minutes 53 seconds left, as it filled toward the sweet relief of 100%, all files copied, I'd be sweating, seeing shadows, and hearing footsteps around every corner. Execute. That was the final step. As each card filled, I had to run my getaway routine. I had to get that vital archive out of the building, past the bosses and military uniforms, down the stairs and out the empty hall, past the badge scans and armed guards, and man traps, those two-doored security zones in which the next door doesn't open until the previous door shuts and your badge scan is approved, and if it isn't, or if anything goes awry, the guards draw their weapons, and the doors lock you in, and you say, well, isn't this embarrassing? This, per all the reports I'd been studying and all the nightmares I'd been having, was where they'd catch me. I was sure of it. Each time I left, I was petrified. I'd have to force myself not to think about the SD card. When you think about it, you act differently, suspiciously. One unexpected upshot of gaining a better understanding of NSA surveillance was that I'd also gained a better understanding of the dangers I faced. In other words, learning about the agency's systems had taught me how to not get caught by them. My guides in this regard were the indictments that the government had brought against former agents, mostly real bastards who, in IC jargon, had exfiltrated classified information for profit. I compiled and studied as many of these indictments as I could. The FBI, the agency that investigates all crime within the IC, took great pride in explaining exactly how they caught their suspects. And believe me, I didn't mind benefiting from their experience. It seemed that in almost every case, the FBI would wait to make its arrest until the suspect had finished their work and was about to go home. Sometimes they would let the suspect take the material out of an SCIF, a sensitive compartmented information facility, which is a type of building or room shielded against surveillance, and out into the public, where its very presence was a federal crime. I kept imagining a team of FBI agents lying in wait for me, there, out in the public light, just at the far end of the tunnel. I'd usually try to banter with the guards, and this was where my Rubik's Cube came in most handy. I was known to the guards and to everybody else at the tunnel as the Rubik's Cube guy, because I was always working the cube as I walked down the halls. I got so adept I could even solve it one-handed. It became my totem, my spirit toy, and a distraction device as much for myself as for my co-workers. Most of them thought it was an affectation or a nerdy conversation starter, and it was. But primarily, it relieved my anxiety. It calmed me. I bought a few cubes and handed them out. Anyone who took to it, I'd give them pointers. The more that people got used to them, the less they'd ever want a closer look at mine. 
I got along with the guards, or I told myself I did, mostly because I knew where their minds were. Elsewhere. I'd done something like their job before, back at Castle. I knew how mind-numbing it was to spend all night standing, feigning vigilance. Your feet hurt. After a while, all the rest of you hurts. And you can get so lonely that you'd talk to a wall. I aimed to be more entertaining than the wall, developing my own patter for each human obstacle. There was the one guard I talked to about insomnia and the difficulties of day sleeping. Remember, I was on nights, so this would have been around two in the morning. Another guy, we discussed politics. He called Democrats demon rats, so I'd read Breitbart News in preparation for the conversation. What they all had in common was a reaction to my cube. It made them smile. Over the course of my employment at the tunnel, pretty much all the guards said some variation of, Oh man, I used to play with that when I was a kid. And then, invariably, I tried to take the stickers off to solve it. Me too, buddy. Me too. It was only once I got home that I was able to relax, even just slightly. I was still worried about the house being wired. That was another one of those charming methods the FBI used against those it suspected of inadequate loyalty. I'd rebuff Lindsay's concern about my insomniac ways until she hated me and I hated myself. She'd go to bed and I'd go to the couch, hiding with my laptop under a blanket like a child because cotton beats cameras. With the threat of immediate arrest out of the way, I could focus on transferring the files to a larger external storage device via my laptop. Only someone who didn't understand technology very well would think I'd keep them on the laptop forever, and locking them down under multiple layers of encryption algorithms using different implementations so that even if one failed, the others would keep them safe. I'd been careful not to leave any traces at my work, and I took care that my encryption left no traces of the documents at home. Still, I knew the documents could lead back to me once I'd sent them to the journalists and they'd been decrypted. Any investigator looking at which agency employees had accessed or could access all these materials would come up with a list with probably only a single name on it, mine. I could provide the journalists with fewer materials, of course, but then they wouldn't be able to most effectively do their work. Ultimately, I had to contend with the fact that even one briefing slide or PDF left me vulnerable because all digital files contain metadata, invisible tags that can be used to identify their origins. I struggled with how to handle this metadata situation. I worried that if I didn't strip the identifying information from the documents, they might incriminate me the moment the journalists decrypted and opened them. But I also worried that by thoroughly stripping the metadata, I risked altering the files. If they were changed in any way, that could cast doubt on their authenticity. Which was more important, my personal safety or the public good? It might sound like an easy choice, but it took me quite a while to bite the bullet. I owned the risk and I left the metadata intact. Part of what convinced me was my fear that even if I had stripped away the metadata I knew about, there could be other digital watermarks I wasn't aware of and couldn't scan for. Another part had to do with the difficulty of scrubbing single-user documents. A single-user document is a document marked with a user-specific code so that if any publication's editorial staff decided to run it by the government, the government would know its source. 
Sometimes the unique identifier was hidden in the date and timestamp coding. Sometimes it involved the pattern of micro dots in a graphic or logo. But it might also be embedded in something in some way I hadn't even thought of. This phenomenon should have discouraged me, but instead it emboldened me. The technological difficulty forced me for the first time to confront the prospect of discarding my lifetime practice of anonymity and coming forward to identify myself as the source. I could embrace my principles by signing my name to them and let myself be condemned. Altogether, the documents I selected fit on a single drive, which I left out in the open on my desk at home. I knew that the materials were just as secure now as they had ever been at the office. Actually, they were more secure, thanks to multiple levels and methods of encryption. That's the incomparable beauty of the cryptological art. A little bit of math can accomplish what all the guns and barbed wire can't. A little bit of math can keep a secret. Chapter 24. Encrypt. Most people who use computers, and that includes members of the fourth estate, think there's a fourth basic permission besides read, write, and execute called delete. Delete is everywhere on the user side of computing. It's in the hardware as a key on the keyboard, and it's in the software as an option that can be chosen from a drop-down menu. There's a certain finality that comes with choosing delete, and a certain sense of responsibility. Sometimes a box even opens up to double-check, are you sure? If the computer is second-guessing you by requiring confirmation, click yes, it makes sense that delete would be a consequential, perhaps even the ultimate, decision. Undoubtedly, that's true in the world outside of computing, where the powers of deletion have historically been vast. Even so, as countless despots have been reminded, to truly get rid of a document, you can't just destroy every copy of it. You also have to destroy every memory of it, which is to say you have to destroy all the people who remember it, along with every copy of all the other documents that mention it and all the people who remember all those other documents. And then maybe, just maybe, it's gone. Delete functions appeared from the very start of digital computing. Engineers understood that in a world of effectively unlimited options, some choices would inevitably turn out to be mistakes. Users, regardless of whether or not they were really in control at the technical level, had to feel in control, especially with regard to anything that they themselves had created. If they made a file, they should be able to unmake it at will. The ability to destroy what they created and start over afresh was a primary function that imparted a sense of agency to the user, despite the fact that they might be dependent on proprietary hardware they couldn't repair and software they couldn't modify and bound by the rules of third-party platforms. Think about the reasons that you yourself press delete. On your personal computer, you might want to get rid of some document you screwed up or some file you downloaded but no longer need or some file you don't want anyone to know you ever needed. On your email, you might delete an email from a former lover that you don't want to remember or don't want your spouse to find or an RSVP for that protest you went to 
On your phone, you might delete the history of everywhere that phone has traveled, or some of the pictures, videos, and private records it automatically uploaded to the cloud. In every instance, you delete, and the thing, the file, appears to be gone. The truth, though, is that deletion has never existed technologically in the way that we conceive of it. Deletion is just a ruse, a figment, a public fiction, a not-quite-noble lie that computing tells you to reassure you and give you comfort. Although the deleted file disappears from view, it is rarely gone. In technical terms, deletion is really just a form of the middle permission, a kind of write. Normally, when you press delete for one of your files, its data, which has been stashed deep down on a disk somewhere, is not actually touched. Efficient modern operating systems are not designed to go all the way into the bowels of a disk purely for the purpose of erasure. Instead, only the computer's map of where each file is stored, a map called the file table, is rewritten to say, I'm no longer using this space for anything important. What this means is that, like a neglected book in a vast library, the supposedly erased file can still be read by anyone who looks hard enough for it. If you only erase the reference to it, the book itself still remains. This can be confirmed through experience, actually. Next time you copy a file, ask yourself why it takes so long when compared with the instantaneous act of deletion. The answer is that deletion doesn't really do anything to a file besides conceal it. Put simply, computers were not designed to correct mistakes but to hide them, and to hide them only from those parties who don't know where to look. The waning days of 2012 brought grim news. The few remaining legal protections that prohibited mass surveillance by some of the most prominent members of the Five Eyes network were being dismantled. The governments of both Australia and the UK were proposing legislation for the mandatory recording of telephony and internet metadata. This was the first time that notionally democratic governments publicly avowed the ambition to establish a sort of surveillance time machine, which would enable them to technologically rewind the events of any person's life for a period going back months and even years. These attempts definitively marked, to my mind at least, the so-called Western world's transformation from the creator and defender of the free Internet to its opponent and prospective destroyer. Though these laws were justified as public safety measures, they represented such a breathtaking intrusion into the daily lives of the innocent that they terrified, quite rightly, even the citizens of other countries who didn't think themselves affected, perhaps because their own governments chose to surveil them in secret. These public initiatives of mass surveillance proved once and for all that there could be no natural alliance between technology and government. The rift between my two strangely interrelated communities, the American IC and the global online tribe of technologists, became pretty much definitive. In my earliest years in the IC, I could still reconcile the two cultures, transitioning smoothly between my spy work and my relationships with civilian internet privacy folks. Everyone from the anarchist hackers to the more sober academic Tor types who kept me current about computing research and inspired me politically. 
For years, I was able to fool myself that we were all ultimately on the same side of history. We were all trying to protect the Internet, to keep it free for speech and free of fear. But my ability to sustain that delusion was gone. Now the government, my employer, was definitively the adversary. What my technologist peers had always suspected, I'd only recently confirmed. And I couldn't tell them. Or I couldn't tell them yet. What I could do, however, was help them out. So long as that didn't imperil my plans. This was how I found myself in Honolulu, a beautiful city in which I'd never had much interest, as one of the hosts and teachers of a crypto party. This was a new type of gathering invented by an international grassroots cryptological movement at which technologists volunteered their time to teach free classes to the public on the topic of digital self-defense, essentially showing anyone who was interested how to protect the security of their communications. In many ways, this was the same topic I taught for JCITA, so I jumped at the chance to participate. Though this might strike you as a dangerous thing for me to have done, given the other activities I was involved with at the time, it should instead just reaffirm how much faith I had in the encryption methods I taught, the very methods that protected that drive full of IC abuses sitting back at my house, with locks that couldn't be cracked even by the NSA. I knew that no number of documents, no amount of journalism, would ever be enough to address the threat the world was facing. People needed tools to protect themselves, and they needed to know how to use them. Given that I was also trying to provide these tools to journalists, I was worried that my approach had become too technical. After so many sessions spent lecturing colleagues, this opportunity to simplify my treatment of the subject for a general audience would benefit me as much as anyone. Also, I honestly missed teaching. It had been a year since I'd stood at the front of a class, and the moment I was back in that position, I realized I'd been teaching the right thing to the wrong people all along. When I say class, I don't mean anything like the ICs, schools, or briefing rooms. The crypto party was held in a one-room art gallery behind a furniture store and a co-working space. While I was setting up the projector so I could share slides showing how easy it was to run a Tor server to help, for example, the citizens of Iran, but also the citizens of Australia, the UK, and the States, my students drifted in, a diverse crew of strangers and a few new friends I'd only met online. All in all, I'd say about 20 people showed up that December night to learn from me and my co-lecturer, Runa Sandvik, a bright young Norwegian woman from the Tor Project, Runa would go on to work as the Senior Director of Information Security for the New York Times, which would sponsor her later crypto parties. What united our audience wasn't an interest in Tor, or even a fear of being spied on, as much as a desire to reestablish a sense of control over the private spaces in their lives. There were some grandparent types who'd wandered in off the street, a local journalist covering the Hawaiian Occupy movement, and a woman who'd been victimized by revenge porn. I'd also invited some of my NSA colleagues, hoping to interest them in the movement and wanting to show that I wasn't concealing my involvement from the agency. Only one of them showed up, though, and sat in the back, legs spread, arms crossed, smirking throughout. I began my presentation by discussing the illusory nature of deletion, whose objective of total erasure could never be accomplished. The crowd understood this instantly. 
I went on to explain that, at best, the data they wanted no one to see couldn't be unwritten so much as overwritten, scribbled over, in a sense, with random or pseudo-random data until the original was rendered unreadable. But, I cautioned, even this approach had its drawbacks. There was always a chance that their operating system had silently hidden away a copy of the file that they were hoping to delete in some temporary storage nook they weren't privy to. That's when I pivoted to encryption. Deletion is a dream for the surveillant and a nightmare for the surveilled, but encryption is, or should be, a reality for all. It is the only true protection against surveillance. If the whole of your storage drive is encrypted to begin with, your adversaries can't rummage through it for deleted files or for anything else unless they have the encryption key. If all the emails on your inbox are encrypted, Google can't read them to profile you unless they have the encryption key. If all your communications that pass through hostile Australian or British or American or Chinese or Russian networks are encrypted, spies can't read them unless they have the encryption key. This is the ordering principle of encryption. All power to the key holder. Encryption works, I explained, by way of algorithms. An encryption algorithm sounds intimidating and certainly looks intimidating when written out, but its concept is quite elementary. It's a mathematical method of reversibly transforming information, such as your emails, phone calls, photos, videos, and files, in such a way that it becomes incomprehensible to anyone who doesn't have a copy of the encryption key. You can think of a modern encryption algorithm as a magic wand that you can wave over a document to change each letter into a language that only you and those you trust can read. And the encryption key as the unique magic words that complete the incantation and put the wand to work. It doesn't matter how many people know that you use the wand, so long as you can keep your personal magic words from the people you don't trust. Encryption algorithms are basically just sets of math problems designed to be incredibly difficult even for computers to solve. The encryption key is the one clue that allows a computer to solve the particular set of math problems being used. You push your readable data, called plain text, into one end of an encryption algorithm, and incomprehensible gibberish, called ciphertext, comes out the other end. When somebody wants to read the ciphertext, they feed it back into the algorithm along with, crucially, the correct key, and out comes the plain text again. While different algorithms provide different degrees of protection, the security of an encryption key is often based on its length, which indicates the level of difficulty involved in solving a specific algorithm's underlying math problem. In algorithms that correlate longer keys with better security, the improvement is exponential. If we presume that an attacker takes one day to crack a 64-bit key, which scrambles your data in one of two to the 64th possible ways. 18 quintillion, 446 quadrillion, 744 trillion, 73 billion, 709 million, 551,616 unique permutations. Then it would take double that amount of time, two days, to break a 65-bit key, and four days to break a 66-bit key. Breaking a 128-bit key would take two to the 64th times longer than a day, or 50 million billion years. 
By that time, I might even be pardoned. In my communications with journalists, I used 4,096 and 8,192-bit keys. This meant that absent major innovations in computing technology or a fundamental redefining of the principles by which numbers are factored, not even all of the NSA's cryptanalysts using all of the world's computing power put together would be able to get into my drive. For this reason, encryption is the single best hope for fighting surveillance of any kind. If all of our data, including our communications, were enciphered in this fashion, from end to end, from the sender end to the recipient end, then no government, no entity conceivable under our current knowledge of physics, for that matter, would be able to understand them. A government could still intercept and collect the signals, but it would be intercepting and collecting pure noise. Encrypting our communications would essentially delete them from the memories of every entity we deal with. It would effectively withdraw permission from those to whom it was never granted to begin with. Any government hoping to access encrypted communications has only two options. It can either go after the key masters or go after the keys. For the former, they can pressure device manufacturers into intentionally selling products that perform faulty encryption or mislead international standards organizations into accepting flawed encryption algorithms that contain secret access points known as backdoors. For the latter, they can launch targeted attacks against the endpoints of the communications, the hardware and software that perform the process of encryption. Often that means exploiting a vulnerability that they weren't responsible for creating, but merely found, and using it to hack you and steal your keys. A technique pioneered by criminals, but today embraced by major state powers, even though it means knowingly preserving devastating holes in the cybersecurity of critical international infrastructure. The best means we have for keeping our keys safe is called zero-knowledge a method that ensures that any data you try to store externally, say, for instance, on a company's cloud platform, is encrypted by an algorithm running on your device before it is uploaded, and the key is never shared. In the zero-knowledge scheme, the keys are in the user's hands and only in the user's hands. No company, no agency, no enemy can touch them. My key to the NSA's secrets went beyond zero-knowledge. It was a zero-knowledge key consisting of multiple zero-knowledge keys. Imagine it like this. Let's say that at the conclusion of my crypto party lecture, I stood by the exit as each of the 20 audience members shuffled out. Now, imagine that as each of them passed through the door and into the Honolulu night, I whispered a word into their ear, a single word that no one else could hear and that they were only allowed to repeat if they were all together, once again, in the same room. Only by bringing back all 20 of these folks and having them repeat their words in the same order in which I'd originally distributed them, could anyone reassemble the complete 20-word incantation. If just one person forgot their word, or if the order of recitation was in any way different from the order of distribution, no spell would be cast, no magic would happen. My keys to the drive containing the disclosures resembled this arrangement with a twist. While I distributed most of the pieces of the incantation, I retained one for myself. Pieces of my magic spell were hidden everywhere, 
But if I destroyed just the single lone piece that I kept on my person, I would destroy all access to the NSA's secrets forever.